Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coastal Crimes. I'm Jen, your host, and this week I am bringing you a story from Mexico. We are going to talk about the murder of Mark Kilroy this week. But before we get into his case, I want to go over a few fun facts about Tampico, Mexico. Tampico lies on the northern bank of the Panuco River, six miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and is completely surrounded by swampy lands and lagoons. During Mexico's 20th century oil boom, the city was the primary oil exporter of the Americas, yielding profits that were invested in the city's famous architecture. It was often compared to that of Venice and New Orleans. As a result, here are some fun facts about the legendary city of Tampico. Lots of stuff gets made here. About 350 assembly plants employ more than 150,000 workers on the Tamaulipas border today. In the southern part of the state, chemical and oil production facilities manufacture acrylic fiber, plastic resins, synthetic rubber, and polymers. The cathedral is the centerpiece of its historic downtown. Tampico's historical downtown features architectural landmarks, such as the Cathedral of Tampico, the Maritime Customs Building, and the Flowers Pyramid, showcasing the city's culturally diverse Mexican history, which attracts many tourists from all over the world. A local dance has its roots in Scotland. La Pacota, a traditional dance of the region, features dancers who jump, leap, and twirl in spirited choreography. The rhythmical motions of the dance, which are thought to be derived from Scottish folk dances, are normally accompanied by a clarinet and drum. The Mexican national anthem also debuted here. The Teatro de la Reforma in Matamoros, which is a city, Matamoros is a city, was originally built in 1865. But in 1904, it witnessed a historical moment in Mexican culture when the country's national anthem was performed there for the first time by its composer, Don Jamie Nuno. Tampico has many beaches along the Gulf of Mexico. Altamira is among the state's more inviting beaches, as well as the Golden Dunes and Miramar Beach, which draws countless vis- visitors every year. But one of the most beautiful beaches along the shoreline is La Barra del Tordo. The Carrizal River meanders along the beach's shore, forming a complex ecosystem with rich and abundant vegetation and fauna, including Laura turtles that come to the beach every year to reproduce. So of course, this is the perfect setting for someone who wants to go on vacation or a college student headed to spring break, which is actually what our story is about today. It was March 10th, 1989. It was spring break, and like many college students, 21-year-old Mark Kilroy and his three longtime friends went for a spring vacation in South Padre Island, Texas. Bradley Moore finished his exams early at Texas A&M University and headed to Austin to pick up Mark Kilroy. Both of them then headed to Santa Fe to pick pick up their two other friends, Bill Huddiston and Brent Martin, before heading to South Padre Island. After a foggy nine-hour drive to South Texas, they arrived at South Padre Island shortly before midnight. They checked in at the Sheraton Hotels and Resorts the next morning before heading to the beach. 
When they first arrived at South Padre Island, there was not a lot of people because it was very early in the five-week spring break season. But thousands of students from the entire U.S. were beginning to arrive as the weekend progressed. Beer sponsors were staging a variety of entertainment events, including free movies, music concerts, free phone calls home, a surf simulator activity, and opportunities to appear on live TV commercials. Kilroy and Moore made free phone calls to their parents that day. Later that evening, they met a group of female students from Purdue University and partied it up until the next morning. The next morning, Kilroy and his friends had more or less a daily routine in mind. They went to the beach in the morning and suntanned before lunch. After lunch, they went to the beach area behind their hotel for the daily Miss Tan Line contest. Once the event was over that afternoon, Kilroy headed to the hotel for a quick nap before planning their trip to Mexico. Mark James Kilroy was born on March 5, 1968, in Chicago, Illinois. His parents were James, goes by Jim, William Kilroy, a chemical engineer, and Helen Josephine Kilroy, a volunteer paramedic. They moved to Texas from the Midwest after their son was born. Kilroy grew up in Santa Fe, Texas, a small town outside of Houston, for over 15 years along with his brother, Keith Richard Kilroy. He was raised as a Catholic, and his parents were frequent attendees of Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church in the adjacent town of Hitchcock, Texas. Kilroy excelled both in academics and athletics as a teenager, and played baseball, basketball, and golf with his friends at school. He was in the Boy Scouts of America and an honors student at Santa Fe High School, where he was the member of the student council and was ranked 14th in a class of 210 students. Upon graduation in 1986, he attended Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, before transferring to Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas, on a basketball scholarship. At Tarleton, he became a member of the Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. He then decided to give up the athletics and transferred to the University of Texas at Austin to become a pre-med student and prepare for his medical college admission test, or the MCAT. Okay, back to the story. So the boys left South Padre Island in the evening and stopped for dinner at a Sonic drive-in in Port Isabel, Texas, where they met a group of female students from the University of Kansas who were also planning to party in, in Mexico as well. The women followed Moore's car from Port Isabel to Brownsville and parked their cars close to the Gateway International Bridge before crossing the U.S.-Mexico border by foot. Kilroy's friends and the Kansas women spent most of their evening at Sergeant Pepper's nightclub in Matamoros before the groups went their separate ways. Kilroy and his friends then returned to South Padre Island early the next morning. On March 13th, Kilroy and his friends attended another Miss Tanline contest behind the Sheraton. Early in the evening, Kilroy met with one of his former frat brothers at a condo party. And then around 10.30 p.m., Kilroy and his friends headed back to Matamoros. They parked on the border and crossed by foot again. That night, Matamoros was flooded with 15,000 spring tourists from the U.S. on the city's main tourist street, Alvaro Obregón. The sidewalks, street, and nightclubs were packed with foreign tourists looking to enjoy cheap alcohol and also to enjoy Mexico's lax drinking laws. 
When they got to Matamoros, Kilroy and his friends decided to go to the bar with the shortest waiting line. They ended up at Los Sombreros, a bar with rock music and bright neon. After a few drinks, Kilroy and his friends left Los Sombreros and wandered to London Pub, which rebranded itself as Hard Rock Cafe for spring break. But from what I can tell, it has no affiliation with the actual Hard Rock Cafe franchise. This bar was louder and wilder than Los Sombreros, and Kilroy and his friends stood at the bar while other tourists threw beer from the balcony. Kilroy met with a few women at the bar and was not seen by his friends for a while. Then around 2 a.m., Huddleston suggested the group head back to South Padre Island. As his friends stepped out of London Pub, they saw Kilroy leaning against a car and talking to a woman from the Miss Tanline contest. Across Alvaro Obregon Street, thousands of tourists were leaving the bars and heading to Brownsville, but others moved in different directions. The large crowd of people made it difficult for Kilroy and his friends to walk across the border uninterrupted and in a group. Moore and Martin were separated from the group and walked to Garcia's, a popular restaurant store close to the border. Kilroy stopped at the steps of a house on Alvaro Obregon to say goodbye to the woman from the Miss Tanline contest. He then waited for Huddleston to walk towards him. Huddleston ran to a nearby alley first so he could pee while Kilroy waited for him. By the time Huddleston came out and caught up to the other two friends near Garcia's, Mark Kilroy had vanished. His friends searched for him for hours, even after the establishments had closed and the streets had cleared at around 4.30 a.m. They then crossed the border, thinking that Mark may have crossed to Brownsville and was hopefully waiting near their parked car. His friends did not find him near their car and waited a few minutes in Brownsville before returning to South Padre Island. At this point, they're thinking that Mark probably left for the hotel with someone else, but... They woke up the next day at the hotel, and Kilroy's whereabouts were still unknown. Worried, they reported him as missing, since Kilroy was not someone who would just disappear without telling them. He was religious, athletic, and excelled in his studies. He was going to become a pre-med student soon. But, like many of the reported missing people cases there, the officers were not concerned. So, the initial search on Kilroy was just a routine investigation. The reason behind that was most of the reported missing people usually turned up in a few days with a really bad hangover. But as Kilroy stood on the street the night before, he was actually lured by a man parked inside a red truck who apparently called him and asked if he needed a ride. As he got closer to the vehicle, Kilroy was grabbed by two men, Serafin Hernandez Garcia and Malio Fabio Ponce Torres, and wrestled inside the truck. Because of his size and athletic strength, Kilroy was able to break loose about two blocks down the road after one of the gangsters stopped for a moment to catch his breath. Kilroy ran from the truck, but was eventually intercepted by another vehicle driven by one of their allies and taken at gunpoint. He was then subdued and handcuffed in the back of the second car. The men drove Kilroy through the back streets of the city and past an industrial area. The number of bars and vendor stands in the streets began to thin out as they drove Kilroy through a highway in the city's outskirts. Then they turned to a dirt road that stretched between two cornfields. 
When they got to the private ranch known as Santa Elena, they left Kilroy inside the car overnight. Shortly after dawn, the ranch's caretaker went to see Kilroy and fed him bread, eggs, and water. About 12 hours after Kilroy was kidnapped, Constanzo and his men came to see him. They wrapped his face and mouth with duct tape and walked him through a field to a storage cabin with his hands still tied around his back. Throughout the night, Kilroy was tortured and sodomized. He was then led out the field and Constanzo killed him by chopping the back of his neck and head with a machete. And I will warn you, this next part is graphic, so if you need to just fast forward like 15 seconds, please do so. His brain was then boiled in a nanga, an African metal pot that Constanzo used to stew human and animal remains. Kilroy's legs were chopped off above his knees to facilitate his burial. A wire was then inserted in his spinal cord to pull the bones out once the body decomposed. The cult members then dug a hole on the grounds and buried Kilroy's body. Now, as I said earlier, the search for Kilroy initially began as a routine missing persons investigation. Kilroy was one of the 60 people who had disappeared in Matamoros in the first three months of 1989. So three months, 60 people, six zero, just to be clear. But his case drew more attention in the U.S. because of his uncle, Ken Kilroy, who worked at the U.S. Customs Service in Los Angeles. When the news reached his uncle, a police task force was created in Brownsville to search for Kilroy. Alarmed with the bad publicity of his disappearance and the potential effects of tourism in Matamoros, local police officers tried to shift the blame and suggested that Kilroy had actually disappeared in Brownsville but Kilroy's friends denied those claims. The Mexican Federal Police Force vowed to work on the case and to, and to help U.S. investigators. One of the commanders assigned Mexican agents to U.S. officials to accompany them into Matamoros. Together, they questioned informants, potential witnesses, and worked on tips provided by their sources. Both Mexican and U.S. authorities suspected that Kilroy's disappearance involved foul play. They speculated that Kilroy could have been a victim of drug-related violence or of robbery killing, but they were short on leads to make any firm conclusions. When Kilroy's friends reported the disappearance, customs agents went with them to Matamoros to help retrace their steps. Texan officials contacted the U.S. consulate in Matamoros and asked investigators to hire out a search with Kilroy's description in Matamoros jails and hospitals. Investigators also hired a hypnotist to see if he could figure out some additional clues. Under hypnosis, Moore stated that he saw a young Hispanic man wearing a blue plaid shirt and with a visible scar across his face talking to Kilroy before he disappeared. He recalled that the man walked up to Kilroy and told him, Hey, don't I know you from somewhere? Though Huddleston Another friend of Kilroy's said he was not sure if Kilroy actually responded back. None of the friends were able to precisely recall the exact moment or place where Kilroy disappeared. Investigators decided by this story that Kilroy was kidnapped for robbery or ransom. The first option seemed the most likely because his abductors had not yet called for a payment. They believed that Kilroy's body was probably dumped in a remote location. 
Helicopters and terrain vehicles of the U.S. Border Patrol were called to look on the Rio Grande River, but his body was not found. During the investigation, Kilroy's parents headed to the Rio Grande Valley and circulated more than 20,000 handouts throughout the region and offered a $15,000 U.S. dollar reward to anyone who could help locate their son. They met with Attorney General Jim Maddox, Texas Governor William Clements, and U.S. Senator Lloyd Benston, Benston to assist them on the case. Texan officials told Kilroy's parents that they were planning to talk to Tamaulipas Governor Americo Villarreal Guerra and get people from Matamoros more involved in their son's disappearance. People from Kilroy's hometown traveled to Matamoros and issued flyers offering the reward to anyone who could provide information on his safe return. U.S. authorities had praised the efforts of the Mexican federal police on the case, but they also distrusted the state and municipal officials. They suspected that because state and local authorities were acting slowly and not sharing enough information, that Kilroy's murderers had insiders within their ranks. But still, the case was getting a lot of attention. On March 26th, the case was highlighted on America's Most Wanted. This gave the case nationwide attention and generated several phone calls and letters with people giving clues on Kilroy's whereabouts. However, the police stated that none of the leads generated were solid enough to pursue. A few days later, Kilroy's parents returned to Santa Fe. Santa Fe residents raised money through garage sales and car washes to help Kilroy's family continue their search. It was weeks later that the case finally had a break and it was actually led by an unrelated effort to Kilroy's case. On April 1st, 1989, Mexican state authorities were stationed at a routine checkpoint near Santa Elena when they saw a vehicle drive through without stopping. The vehicle had crossed the international border from Texas and sped through Mexican Federal Highway 2, which connects Matamoros and Reynosa Tamaulipas. The man driving the vehicle was Serafin, the man who had kidnapped Kilroy weeks earlier. Instead of turning on their police sirens, though, the police decided to follow the truck using an unmarked vehicle. They were then led to the ranch and pulled off at a distance. After about 30 minutes, Serafin took off from the ranch and headed back to the city. The officers decided now was the time to make their move on the ranch. In a quick search, the police discovered cult paraphernalia and marijuana traces. Instead of arresting Serafin, the police decided to continue gathering more evidence on the suspected criminal activities at the ranch and the organized crime members involved with the Hernandez family. They used informants in Matamoros to inquire on family activities at Santa Elena in order to make a series of crucial arrests. On April 9th, they returned with several other policemen and arrested Serafin, his uncle Elio, cult members David Serna Valdez and Sergio Martinez Salinas, and Domingo, Domingo Reyes Bustamante, the ranch's caretaker. While in custody, the, det the detainees were very relaxed. They were sent to prison while the police interrogated a caretaker at the ranch. It was a case of marijuana smugglers, but it was this interrogation that linked Kilroy to the ranch. The caretaker revealed to the police that the ranch had frequent visitors from Serafin's criminal group. 
He identified Kilroy through a photograph and stated that he did see him at the ranch. He remembered Kilroy handcuffed, but he did not understand what Kilroy was saying because the caretaker only spoke Spanish. But he did feed Kilroy bread and water the night before Kilroy was taken away. At the same time that the caretaker was getting questioned, Serafin Hernandez was also being interrogated at the police station. Under pressure, he admitted to aiding the murder of Kilroy and that other people were killed over the course of several months at Santa Elena. Serafin then identified Costanzo and Aldrit as the heads of the group. He said that Costanzo had ordered the slayings as part of a sacrificial ritual. Costanzo believed that by sacrificing his victims, those doing the sacrifice were ensured strength, abundance, and immunity from law enforcement and injury. Specifically, he said that Kilroy was chosen at random because Costanzo had ordered his men to find a white Anglo male or a gringo to sacrifice. He said that Kilroy was killed by Costanzo with a machete blow and that his body was buried at the ranch. Serafin then agreed to take the police to the exact spot where Kilroy was buried, which was marked by a wire piece coming out of the dirt. He stated that the wire was actually attached to Kilroy's spinal cord so they would be able to pull out the bones and wear them as necklaces after the body decomposed. Even after the suspects were caught, None of them showed any remorse during their confession. One of the cult members, Elio Hernandez, even challenged the commandante to shoot him, saying, go ahead, your bullets will just bounce right off. Kilroy's murderer, Adolfo Constanzo, was a Cuban-American who was born in Miami, Florida in 1962. His father died when he was an infant, so his mother relocated to Puerto Rico with him, where she remarried. They then returned to Florida in 1972, and his stepfather died soon afterwards, leaving a very large inheritance behind. His mother married a third time, this time with a man who was involved in drug trafficking and the occult. His stepfather taught him a philosophy that Constanzo carried for the rest of his life. He told him that he should let non-believers, quote, kill themselves with drugs, end quote, while he could profit from their foolishness. Around the same time, Constanzo's mother believed that her son had psychic abilities. She introduced him to Paulo Mayombe, an Afro-Caribbean religion that involves animal sacrifice. He was also introduced to Santeria when he was younger. He started as a palero, someone who practiced Paulo Mayombe and eventually reached the status of a high priest, a padrino. In 1984, he moved to Mexico City to start his life as a tarot card reader and eventually developed a cult following. His charisma, physical attractiveness, he had previously worked as a male model, and claimed psychic talent granted him the opportunity to mingle with Mexico City's upper class. His reputation for predicting the future and offering ritual cleansing became popular with some drug dealers, musicians, and police officers. The other cult leader was Sarah Audrit, an honor student and cheerleader at Texas Southmost College. She was the girlfriend of Gilberto Sosa, a drug dealer linked to the Hernandez clan, to which Constanzo wanted an introduction. In 
1987, she met Constanzo and eventually became the cult's main recruiter. Investigators believed that Aldrete's physical attractiveness and charm helped her lure men to join the cult or set them up to be abducted and killed. For a minute when I was researching this, I could have sworn that it would end up with being Aldrete was the one who lured Mark Kilroy into this. But with all the research I've done, I don't think that's what happened. I think that he was just just chosen at random by the guys that Constanzo ordered to find them someone. But for the guys that she did recruit, she recruited them by first showing them the 1987 thriller film, The Believers, which was about a New York City-based cult that practiced human sacrifice for money and influence. Constanzo's members were forced to see the film again and again in order to indoctrinate them to the necessity of human sacrifice. Students and teachers at her college in Brownsville recalled her as a friendly and studious physical education student who showed no signs of abnormal behavior or involvement with a religious cult. Across the border in Matamoros, however, Aldrete was involved in drug smuggling operations and in cult activities. Some of her former classmates found it suspicious that she drove a 1989 vehicle with an embedded telephone, while others recalled she preferred to dress all in black. Investigators believed that her proximity to the U.S.-Mexican border allowed Aldrete to keep her two lives separate for years. And because of her contradictory lifestyle, law enforcement even believed that Aldrete was living a double life and showed signs and symptoms of having a multiple personality disorder. Now this, I disagree with. I think that it was still, I mean, it was, it was 1989, 1990s, but we still, we still weren't educated enough on mental issues and definitely not on multiple personalities. I don't think that she had multiple personalities, but I do think that she was living two different lives, one in Mexico and the other in the United States. The ranch where Kilroy was murdered in Matamoros, Santa Elena, Elena, was owned by a guy named Brigado Hernandez. He was not a follower of Constanzo and was not charged with any crimes in the U.S. or Mexico. But the sudden death of Saul Hernandez in a shooting prompted his family, including Elio and his brothers Serafin Sr. and Ovidio, to grow closer to ritual and eventually become members of Constanzo's cult. Elio reportedly offered Constanzo half of his family's drug proceeds in exchange for his criminal contacts and supernatural protection for his family. On April 11th, the police took Serafin and the four other suspects to Santa Elena and asked Serafin to show the police where Kilroy's and the others' remains were kept, which he did say he would do when he was confessing. When the combined force of U.S. and Mexican police approached the ranch that the caretaker and Serafin mentioned, they first noticed the stench of decaying flesh. The Mexican police were reluctant to approach because they feared the possibility of witchcraft and the occult. On the dried, blood-smeared floor, they found an iron pot containing iron and wooden spikes and remains of human brain and animal parts. Seraphin let them know that Mark Kilroy's brain was in that pot. 
That afternoon, they were forced at gunpoint to spend several hours digging up the graves. Once Kilroy's body had been exhumed, the police observed that his legs were missing, and Seraphin explained that the amputations were not a procedure of the ritual, but were done just to simplify his burial. A total of 15 bodies were found in the area, all of them mutilated and all males who had been killed over a period of nine months. They were either shot or slashed. Some of them had missing heart, ears, eyes, and testicles. But three out of the 15 disfigured bodies were never identified. Kilroy's body was officially identified after the Brownsville police matched his dental records with the teeth found at the scene. Investigators concluded that most of the victims were actually rival drug dealers of Constanzo and not random sacrificial victims of the cult. At Santa Elena, the Mexican police also seized 110 kilograms, which is about 243 pounds, of marijuana, 108 grams of cocaine, 12 firearms, including three submachine guns, and 11 vehicles, some equipped with telephones. Inside an iron pot, investigators confirmed remains of a human brain, a goat's head, chicken feet, a turtle, several herbs, a horseshoe, and coins mixed with animal blood. They did, did not find any signs of cannibalism. Experts believed that the cult was influenced by Santeria and Palo Mayombe based on the items that they found in the ranch. Even though both Santeria and Palo Mayombe do practice the offering of animal sacrifice and exhume human bones, neither of them actually commonly practice human sacrifice. On April 12th, the detainees were taken to the headquarters of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police in Matamoros for an informal press conference. More than 250 international journalists arrived at the scene to take pictures and ask them questions. The four suspects were paraded from the building's balcony and were allowed to answer questions from the reporters. Elio stated that he was an ordained executioner under Costanzo and that Kilroy was murdered by, by Costanzo. As the cameras zoomed in on the suspects, Elio showed his membership scars on his shoulders, back, arms, and chest. These were arrow-like cuts made with a hot blade. The marks were given to selected cult members with the authority to perform human sacrifice. Or that's what Elio said. On April 13th, a religious ceremony initially intended to revive hope for Kilroy's safe return turned into a memorial service a day after his body was discovered. The service was held at Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church in Santa Fe. Many local residents attended the service and about 150 children pinned yellow ribbons outside the church's trees to rally in favor of Kilroy. After the ceremony, Kilroy's friends stated that they wished they had stayed in Texas to party instead of going to Mexico. At St. Luke Catholic Church in Brownsville, over 1,200 people attended a memorial service to support Kilroy's parents. Several of the attendees wore yellow ribbons with Miss You Mark written on them and waited in line after the service was over to express their condolences to Mark Kilroy's parents. 
The Kilroy family showed deep faith and conviction while speaking to the press. Kilroy's father spoke about the murder and told the press that they were not angry with the killers. He hoped that if and when those responsible for Kilroy's death go to heaven and see their son, that they would apologize to him for their wrongdoing. And Kilroy's mother told others just to pray for the murderers. On April 15th, Kilroy's parents met with U.S. President George H.W. Bush and William Bennett, who headed the Office of National Drug Control Policy. They told the politicians that for every drug consumer, there is a victim who suffers from their addiction. In addition, he stated that drug consumption should be treated with better education and that the use of drugs, even casually, causes suffering. And I just want to say I 100% agree with that. Anyway, President Bush described the case as very sensitive, and Bennett stated that Kilroy's murder was mourned nationwide, but that the parents were able to turn their suffering into a very good effort. After the meeting, his parents did state that although Bush and Bennett were not specific on the actions that the administration would take to fight drugs and enforce it at a local, state, and federal level, they were satisfied that the, that the government was looking in the right direction. They did praise the efforts of the government in asking citizens what could be done to improve their country. Kilroy's father concluded that change required the government to do its part, but that it also required every citizen of the country to put in their effort to make it happen. Two weeks after the bodies were exhumed from Santa Elena, the Mexican Federal Police returned to the ranch early in the morning to burn down the shack Kilroy was tortured in and lay a wooden cross above the ashes. Reportedly, the police took a curandero, a folk healer, to purify the shack before burning it down. The curandero went inside the house, said a few prayers, sprinkled the floor with salt, and concluded by making the sign of the cross. The policemen then proceeded to spray gasoline around the shack before setting it on fire. The Mexican government offered no official explanation for their actions, but a source close to the investigation did state that the police's motives were supernatural in nature. They said that they knew the shack meant a lot to Constanzo, and burning it would make him go insane. We would hit him where it hurts, the police said. And the next morning, Constanzo reportedly went into a rage after the arson was shown on national television. But, I mean, who really knows? By murdering Mark Kilroy, Constanzo prompted the downfall of his cult. He attracted international attention and forced the Mexican government to focus their efforts on bringing him and those involved to justice. On April 11, 1989, the day the bodies were exhumed from Santa Elena, Constanzo fled to a Holiday Inn in Brownsville before flying from McAllen, Texas to Mexico City, where he allegedly had an apartment. He escaped with Aldrete, Martin Quintan. Quintania Rodriguez, Omar Francisco Orea Ochoa, and Alvaro de Leon Valdez, or El Dubi. U.S. and Mexican law enforcement agencies carried out an international manhunt to locate Constanzo and the rest of his cult members. The police believed that Constanzo had possibly fled to Miami to visit his mother, but Constanzo opted for Mexico City, where he hid with several of his followers for short periods of time. 
rumors began to surface that Constanza was seen in Chicago, Illinois, and other rumors suggested that Aldrete was spotted in schools throughout the Rio Grande Valley and that she had vowed to kidnap children for every jailed cult member. A convenience store clerk in Clovis, New Mexico, called the police and told them that he had seen a couple matching the description of Constanzo and Aldrit stopping at his store to purchase something. According to investigators, Constanzo was last seen driving a 1989 Mercedes-Benz in Brownsville. In Matamoros, law enforcement raided Aldrit's house, where they discovered an altar and several religious images. They also stated that the house's interior was covered with blood. In the Cameron County Sheriff's Office, authorities released a wanted poster of Constanzo stating that he was extremely dangerous and indicted him and Aldrete for aggravated kidnapping. Both were also indicted by a state jury in McAllen, along with 11 cult members from Constanzo's organization for importing marijuana, conspiracy to import marijuana, conspiracy to possess with the intent of distributing, and possession with the intent of distributing. Cameron County officials also issued arrest warrants for the other cult members who were still at large. Although none of the leads proved successful, the police encouraged citizens to continue helping them in their search. On April 17th, Serafin Hernandez Rivera Sr., a Brownsville native, was arrested in Houston by the DEA and Texas Department of Public Safety agents. Federal charges were filed against him for importing marijuana, possession, and conspiracy. Two other men implicated with him were Quintana Rodriguez, Rodriguez and Ponce Torres, both Mexican citizens. As the police searched his Houston home, they seized cash and weapons, but found no evidence of any cult paraphernalia or leads pointing to Constanzo. Houston police believed that Constanzo was probably not hiding in Houston because he was linked to a $20 million failed cocaine operation that was busted there in June 1988. When the house was raided, investigators found ritualistic candles, an altar, and paperwork with Rivera's name on it. The police believed that Constanzo bought several properties across Houston in the past and were investigating if he had visited any of his alleged handouts. Seraphine Sr. cooperated with U.S. officials and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He was released in June 1990 and returned to Brownsville. The same day, in Mexico City, the police raided one of Constanzo's properties in Atizapan. They discovered piles of homosexual pornography and a hidden ritual chamber with an altar. This prompted the police to question people in Mexico City's homosexual community to see if they had any leads on Constanzo's whereabouts. The Mexican police stated that no evidence was found at the scene to link Constanzo or his men to any murders committed there. They said they saw altars and other ritualistic belongings, but did not find any traces of blood. No men were arrested at the scene, but the police managed to arrest a lady called Maria Teresa Quintana Rodriguez, sister of one of Constanzo's lovers and henchmen. The police also discovered that Aldrit's purse and other belongings were left behind, which made them think that Constanzo probably murdered her because she knew too much about the inner workings of his cult group.
The police stated that they did not see Aldrete with the group when they arrived in Mexico City. They thought that Constanzo might have buried her somewhere in the city, though. U.S. authorities, however, believed that Aldrete purposely left her belongings behind to confuse investigators and make it appear that she was dead. On April 24th, the police arrested Victor Manuel Antunes Flores and Salvador Antonio Villaluz, who were hiding in one of Constanzo's properties in the Juarez neighborhood. The Mexico City Police Department noticed that the Matamoros killings were similar to murders carried out in Mexico City between 1987 and 1989. After consulting local witchcraft practitioners and sorcerers, the police heard that Constanzo was probably hiding in, and I'm so sorry, this is super hard to say, so I don't know if I'll get it right, but Constanzo was probably hiding in Cuauhtémoc, Cuauhtémoc, one of the city's boroughs. But another contact told the police that there was an address of interest in the Veronica Anzuras neighborhood, right next to Cuauhtémoc. They sent 16 officers to search the area. At a supermarket, they interrogated a shoemaker who claimed to have seen a woman that matched Aldrete's description. The police then spotted a man at the supermarket who was attempting to buy large amounts of groceries with U.S. dollars. They followed the man and saw that he was living at an apartment on Rio Sena. By the end of the week, the police concluded that the man was de Leon and that he was buying groceries for Constanzo. On May 6, 1989, the police surrounded the building and waited for traffic to subside before raiding the premises. However, a black vehicle pulled up in front of the apartment complex and the police walked over to investigate. Constanzo noticed the police from the window of his apartment and opened fire at the officers who were at ground level. He also threw golden coins and paper money from the window and burned some of his money on a stove. Eventually, he ran out of ammunition and began to lose his patience. After about 45 minutes and worried of his imminent capture, Constanzo ordered De Leon to kill him and Quintana Rodriguez. De Leon hesitated at the beginning, but Constanzo hit him in the face and told him that he would suffer in hell if he did not do as commanded. Constanzo then hugged Quintana Rodriguez and De Leon stood in front of them before he opened fire and killed the two with a machine gun inside a closet. When the police climbed up the stairs and made it to Constanzo's smoke-filled apartment, Aldrete ran from this door screaming that Constanzo was dead. De Leon later confessed that Constanzo had lost his mind and was saying that everyone was lost and everything is lost and that no one was going to have his money when the police raid forced him to barricade himself in his apartment. Which explains why he was burning his money and throwing it out the window. He also admitted to participating in Mark Kilroy's murder and in other kill killings at Santa Elena, but both agreed that Constanzo did most of the killings himself. Aldrete denied participation in the killings and said that she was unaware of them until she saw the victims on national television. She said she was sorry to hear about Kilroy's murder and stated that she was not an official member of the cult and was barely going through initiation. She also tried to say that she was held prisoner while Constanzo was hiding in Mexico City. The police did ask if she was in love with him and she denied it, 
and saying that she was only his follower. At the scene, the police took Aldrit de Leon, Orea Ochoa, Juan Carlos Fragoso, and Jorge Montes into custody. The police also arrested Maria de Lourdes Guero Lopez and Maria de Rocio Cuevas Guerra, other cultists under Constanzo, in Mexico City later that day. They were renting one of Constanzo's apartments. The people arrested that day were held for homicide, criminal association, wounding an officer, and damage to property. Fearing that Constanzo might have purposely faked his own death, investigators conducted fingerprint analysis, but concluded that the body was Constanzo. Constanzo's 9mm Uzi submachine gun and his supposed suitcase were never formally presented by the police as seized items. On May 15th, the judge refused to set bail for the individuals arrested that day because they were wanted for crimes accumulating over 50 years in prison. On August 27th, 1989, Orea Ochoa was admitted to a hospital in Santa Marta, Acatitla, after being diagnosed with AIDS. The police said that he and Aldrit were Constanzo's lovers, but that Aldrit showed no signs of the disease in her immune system. He died on February 11, 1990. On June 2, 1989, Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarcón, a police chief of the Federal Judicial Police, was indicted for drug trafficking. He was linked to Constanzo by Aldrit and other cult members who claimed he acted as the group's contact in the police. Aldrit said that Constanzo told her he had killed two men to favor Garcia Alarcón. The police chief defended his stance and said that Alarcón's involvement with Constanzo was purely religious. He said that he was possessed with spirits at a young age and sought Constanzo for help. He was not charged for Kilroy's murder or for any other killings conducted by Constanzo's group. In August 1990, De Leon was sentenced to 30 years in prison for killing Constanzo and Quintana Rodriguez. Fragose and Montez were convicted of a separate murder charge and sentenced to 35 years in prison. Reyes Bustamante, the ranch caretaker, was accused in court of cover-up. He was released from prison on December 11, 1990, after paying a bond of 500 U.S. dollars. On June 10, 1993, drug trafficking charges against Ovidio and Ponce Torres were dropped in the U.S. without a stated reason. On May 3, 1994, Aldrit was sentenced to 62 years in prison. Cult members Elio Serafin Jr., Martinez Salinas, and Serva Valdez received 67 years each. In an interview with the press, Kilroy's parents stated that they were relieved to hear that the cultists were sentenced. The charges were multiple homicide, 31 years, possession of narcotics, 12 years, involvement in organized crime, 5 years, police impersonation, 2 years, illegal body desecration, 2 years, illegal possession of firearms, 10 years, and illegal possession of weapons exclusive to the Mexican Armed Forces, 5 years. The Mexican federal judge explained that the reason Aldrit received fewer years in prison than the rest was because she was not charged with using weapons that were military exclusive, which carries a 5-year maximum sentence. 
He also stated that the maximum conviction a person in Mexico can receive for capital murder is 50 years. Since Mexico's judicial system does not have parole, it allows for prisoners to file motions at an appeal court to reduce their sentences after several years. So on March 27, 1998, a Mexican federal court reduced the sentences of Elio Cerna Valdez and Martinez Salinas by 17 years, lowering their sentences from 67 total years to 50. Since the death penalty and life sentences are not part of Mexico's judicial system, reductions for charges that are over 50 years are pretty common. In addition, individuals like the cult members, who were charged with murder and other serious crimes that push the total punishment sum above 50 years for capital murder, really do often have their sentences reduced by an appeal court. Especially if the individuals were first-time offenders, which the cult members were, an appeals court may determine that it is reasonable to reduce their sentences. Elio was sent to a prison in Ciudad Victoria, Tamaulipas. The other two were sent to Federal Social Readaptation Center No. 1 in Amoloya, state of Mexico. As of 2009, only two suspects remained at large, Ovidio and Ponce Torres, and were wanted for Kilroy's murder in Mexico. Aldrit spoke to the press in 2003 and denied her participation in Kilroy's murder and in the cult killings. She said that it was impossible for investigators to understand what had happened at Santa Elena because the biggest evidence in the case, Constanzo, was dead. Aldrit also stated that the police hid the names of famous people involved with Constanzo for their own convenience. She concluded by stating that she believed in God and was not going to ask society for forgiveness because she was innocent of the crimes. The following year, Aldrit interviewed with the press again and stated that she had been tortured to confess. She said that she had been stripped naked, blindfolded, beaten upside down, and then had her toenails yanked. Audrey claimed she was beaten so severely that doctors told her she would never be able to have children. In the early 2000s, she published an autobiography where she detailed how she met Constanzo and the group. Her experiences when she was allegedly taken hostage by Constanzo in Mexico City and was then taken hostage after Constanzo decided to not let her go because he believed she would go to the police and tell them where they were hiding. She claimed that Constanzo and the rest of the group were unaware of the killings that occurred in Matamoros until they found out that the police were looking for them, but went into hiding nonetheless because they feared for their lives. She detailed her alleged mistreatments in jail and how she underwent beatings, psychological torture, rape, and an unfair trial. Her version of Constanzo's death was different than the official one. She said that Constanzo was executed by the police when they raided the apartment. She also questioned the police's decision to burn down the shack in Santa Elena since it was crucial for the investigation and probably contained the fingerprints of the murderers. In an interview with the press in 2014, Serafin and Martinez Salinas gave their versions of the story and proclaimed their innocence. Serafin now said that the Federal Judicial Police Commander Juan Benitez Ayala found Serafin guilty because he was related to Elio and Ovidio. He said he was not arrested at the ranch, but actually at Elio's in-law's house in Matamoros. 
He also said he grew up in Houston and moved to Brownsville for college and that he was in Matamoros to confess his participation in Kilroy's murder and in the killings in Santa Elena. He said he was beaten and told that he and his family would be killed if he spoke English during his declaration. He said he was a student of Texas Southmost College and he knew who Aldrete was, but did not have any connection with her. Serafin also said that he had never met Constanzo and had no idea his family ranch was a gathering place for his cult. He said that he had never dug up the bodies and had been taken to the ranch after the bodies were already exhumed. So he's basically going back on everything that he had already confessed to years before. Anyway, Martinez Salinas, on the other hand, said that he was forced to confess because he was a neighbor at Santa Elena and the driver of the Hernandez family. He said he had been beaten and taken to the ranch where he was told to pose with with the exhumed bodies. When asked if he ever met Constanzo, he stated that he had seen him in person at the ranch with the Hernandezes, but never actually talked to him. Martinez Salinas said he was arrested one afternoon at Elio's in-law's house when he was looking for a part for his car. He said he had known Audrey years before, since he had dated one of her sisters when he was young. He said that he had never heard Audrey talk about the cult. She had talked about her school and her marriage. He also said that Elio and Ovidio, Ovidio never invited him to the cult or talked to him about it. These stories that they're coming up with years later now just seem way too similar to believe, in my opinion. But two months after Kilroy was confirmed dead, his parents founded the Mark Kilroy Foundation, which promotes drug awareness, education, and prevention through the Just Say No campaign. Since Kilroy's dream was to become a doctor after college, his parents decided to help others and continue his dream through this program. Since 1994, the foundation has sponsored and worked alongside Substance Abuse-Free Environment, or SAFE, a nonprofit community group that promotes awareness for substance abuse and drug prevention. Both of them partner with the Santa Fe local government, its school system, and the ones nearby, and with businesses and private donors to provide programs for the entire year. The full-time and part-time counselors visit school campuses during the academic year in Santa Fe and Hitchcock to hold programs for approximately 800 students regularly. When students are gone for the summer, the foundation conducts programs in summer camps by partnering with volunteers. They offer free outdoor activities like archery, golf, fishing, tennis, and swimming. An average of 550 youth participate in these programs every summer. According to Kilroy's father, the purpose of these summer activities is to keep the youth distracted when they are not in school so they don't get bored and think about consuming drugs. On September 1999, the foundation signed an agreement with the U.S. federal government to receive 10 yearly grants of $100,000. By the 10th year, the government intended to stop the funding and expect the foundation to be self-supporting. However, Kilroy's parents stated that the year expenses exceeded $160,000 and that they would need to find new ways to make up the deficit. The Mark Kilroy Foundation was one of five nonprofit organizations in Galveston County that receives proceeds from a bingo place in Lamarck, Texas. 
They also receive proceeds from sales of the book Sacrifice, written by Kilroy's father and Bob Stewart in 1990. Besides counseling children and teenagers with drug advice, Kilroy's parents also advise young people who plan to travel for spring break, suggesting that they stay in groups, keep an eye on each other, and not to wander off on their own. I repeat, when you are traveling, please do not wander off on your own. They also suggest tourists be aware of travel warnings and abide by foreign laws and regulations when they travel outside the United States, though they reiterated that people can also get hurt in the U.S. too. After Kilroy was confirmed dead, the media framed the drug group and their religious practices as Satanist. For the most part, the U.S. media labeled the group as Satanist and gave little mention to the drug-related violence that was widespread in northern Mexico, which failed to provide a wider picture of what actually happened in Matamoros. Reports concluded that because human body parts were found inside a large metal pot, the group probably practiced cannibalism, but there's no reports to say that conclusively. Some journalists made the error of attributing cannibalism with the common mistake of Satanist groups sacrificing and eating human remains. Other writers stated that Constanzo believed in Kadiempembe, the devil in Palo Mayombe. In addition, some occult writers believed that the nature of Kilroy's murder, which included mutilation and clandestine burial, were part of occult tradition. When media coverage and allegations of Constanzo's affinity towards Satanism died down, several Afro-Caribbean scholars stated that Constanzo's actions were fueled by his personal conviction and psychopathic involvement with Paulo Mayombe. They argue that Constanzo used Paulo Mayombe for his own financial, illicit, and psychological needs by convincing his cult members to help further his drug trafficking operations. Through human sacrifice, Constanzo promised his members that they were protected from the law. Other Afro-Caribbean scholars, on the other hand, alleged that Constanzo murdered Kilroy because he truly believed it was a requirement in his distorted view of Paulo Mayombe. From this point of view, Constanzo's actions and what happened in Matamoros could happen anywhere. On the 20th anniversary of their son's murder, Mark Kilroy's parents visited the Rio Grande Valley and Matamoros to thank the people who had supported them in their search for their son. Kilroy's father stated that people were supportive and called the police whenever they saw something suspicious that they thought was related to their son's disappearance. He said that it was easier to overcome their son's death because of the support they received. Kilroy's mother said she received a cross from a Brownsville woman when she was searching for her son in 1989. Quote, It's a reminder every time that I know that the Lord was involved in everything, she said, while she touched and showed the cross around her neck. And that is the case today that I wanted to cover. Um, I know it was a long one and a pretty brutal one, but I do want to just highlight this case and let everyone know that when you are traveling on spring break, bad things can happen. So just stay in groups. Don't wander off. Keep an eye out for each other. All right. That's it for today. I will talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. 
check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.